my tribute to Elvis. From the sun years of the fifties and the birth of rock and roll, millions screamed to see him do his thing. Elvis touched the life of every ear that heard him. They couldn't help but listen when he sang. It's a long way from Memphis to that mansion in the sky. But he kept his faith in Jesus all along It's a long way from Graceland Across Jordan to the Promised Land But Jesus finally came to lead him home This is Our American Stories And you're listening to Merle Haggard And his tribute to Elvis Presley And the crew was talking the other day About songs inspired by Elvis Presley And we were just... Yeah, we were just goofing off and started rattling it off the songs and thought, let's do an hour on the songs that were made as a tribute to or were thinking about Elvis Presley. And my goodness, well, you're going to enjoy this. Let's go back, though, to Merle Haggard and take a listen to his. Of the day. It's a long way from Memphis to that mansion in the sky. But he kept his faith in Jesus all along. It's a long way from Graceland across Jordan to the Promised Land. But Jesus finally came to lead him home. It's a long way from Memphis to that mansion in the sky. But he kept his faith in Jesus all along. It's a long way from Graceland across Jordan to the Promised Land. Finally came to lead him home. And that song is called From Graceland to the Promised Land, and it was released in October of 1977. The only single from the album My Farewell to Elvis, that was the actual title of the album, and that's the impact that the king of rock and roll had on a country rebel like Merle Haggard. And by the way, that charted at number four on the Billboard Hot Country Singles and Tracks chart. Not bad. And let's take somebody, well, I'll never forget the first time I ever saw this man at Madison Square Garden. I took my mother, because she was a big fan. And Bruce Springsteen kicked off the first show he ever did at Madison Square Garden with Heartbreak Hotel. This is a song, though, that Bruce wrote in honor of Elvis. It's called Johnny Bye Bye. It was on the non-album B-side of a Bruce Springsteen track from 1985. The title is an homage to Chuck Berry's Bye Bye Johnny, but this stripped-down Born in the USA outtake is about Elvis Presley. It was the B-side, by the way, to I'm on Fire. Springsteen was devastated by Elvis's death in 1977. The song took three years to write. Bruce said this, The type of fame Elvis had, the pressure of it, the isolation that it almost seems to require... It's got to be really painful. Let's take a listen to Bruce's very short and really beautiful Johnny Bye Bye. One, two, three. 
And that was the impact Elvis had on almost everybody. John Lennon talked about the impact that Elvis had. By the way, we looked it up. Elvis, more than any any other musician, had songs written about him. 220 that we could count. I'm sure there are more. I mean, it's hard to actually grab all these things, but we did our best. 220 songs. We're going to bring you some of our favorites, the ones that we listened to, figured you might want to listen to. We're going to go out in this segment with a song called We Remember the King. And it was performed by a couple of pretty good guys, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, and Carl Perkins. In an all-star tribute to Elvis, Johnny Cash sings the lead from the 1986 reunion Class of 55. This was a TV special and subsequent CD. As a swiffer Lies o'er the mountain How we wish we were there at its wing Closer by far to a friend we have lost We remember the king We remember We remember we recall, we recall everything We will treasure all of the gifts that he did bring We remember the king This is Our American Stories, songs about Elvis for the hour Let's go back to the class of 55. And when shadows fall in the valley To that precious memory we cling Like a spark that ignites And his flame still shines bright As we remember
our American story. Songs about Elvis. We were just jawboning and started talking about our favorite songs about Elvis one day, and the list started getting pretty long. We looked it up. There were 220 altogether that we could find. We called through about 40 of them, and for the hour, we're going to play our favorites and hopefully yours, and some you might not have ever heard before. That Johnny Bye Bye by Bruce Springsteen. A lot of people don't know that song. Bruce played it throughout that tour, the Born in the USA tour, uh, with an explanation, by the way, that was just beautiful. And now let's go to a song called Black Velvet, recorded by Canadian singer-songwriter Alana Miles, released in December of 1989 on Atlantic Records. It became a number one hit for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in 1990 and reached number one on the album Rock Charts. And Miles won the 1991 Grammy for Best Rock Vocal Performance, Female, for the song, and the 1990 Juno Award for the Single of the Year. Since its release, the song has received substantial airplay, receiving a Millionaire Award from ASCAP in 2005 for more than 4 million radio plays. As you're listening, you're thinking, I've always known that song. I sort of thought it was about Elvis, but now I really know it's about Elvis. Let's return back to Black Velvet.
And next up, and I had the luck, one of the lucky times in my life. I was at a, a friend's home around Nashville. I was doing a show with Laura Ingram at the time nationally. We were doing well in Nashville, and a, a friend of ours said, Hey, you got to come over to our house. We have this songwriter's roundtable uh, every like Wednesday night, and come on by. And my goodness, uh, Kixbrook were there, was there, and Paul Simon was there. So I thought, wow, what kind of a round table is this, and why can't I come more often? And they all started playing each other's songs, and somebody asked Paul Simon what the best song was he ever wrote, and my goodness, did he write great songs. And he didn't hesitate. He took out his acoustic guitar, and I'd never listened to this song the way I listened to it that night. It was Graceland. of this song to you because they're so startling and how he sets this song up is remarkable and the reason this song is a song about Elvis is because in the end this man the narrator in this song has just gone through a cataclysmic divorce and here's how the song starts and by the way he's gone through a cataclysmic divorce and he wants some kind of absolution and so he packs up his boy and he goes on a road trip to Graceland the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar I'm following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland. Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Poor boys and pilgrims with families. We're all going to Graceland. And then he gets into the next 
stanza and verse. My traveling companion is nine years old. He's the child of my first marriage. But I have reason to believe we both will be received in Graceland. By the way, this is a Jewish writer using Christian language and going on a pilgrimage of, of a sorts looking for redemption of some kind. And here's the killer, killer lines in this song. I mean, it had everybody in that room startled. It was so good. He's now talking about his wife, who's leaving him or has announced she's leaving to him. She comes back to tell me she's gone. What a great line. She comes back to tell me she's gone, as if I didn't know that, as if I didn't know my own bed, as if I'd never noticed the way she brushed her hair from her forehead. And she said, losing love is like losing a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody sees the wind blow. And back to the chorus. I'm going to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. This is what Elvis inspired in folks. And he brought the most unlikely people, religious, ethnic, together. Go to Graceland sometimes. You'll see it. From everywhere, from all around the world, they come. Let's go out with Paul Simon. stories for the hour songs about Elvis there were over 200 written and this is Elton John's it's called Port it's called Porch Swing in Tupelo and of course Tupelo is the birthplace of Elvis and that's only an hour away from where we broadcast here in Oxford Mississippi 
and about an hour south of Memphis, where Elvis perched and built his family and life at Graceland. And this song was written in 2004 for an album called Peachtree Road, named after Peachtree Road, the northern part of Peachtree Street in Atlanta, where one of Elton John's four homes is located. This is the only album during his long career on which John alone has sole credit as producer. Let's go back to Elton John's porch swing in Tupelo. Next up, a guy named Mark Knopfler. And by the way, we learned that Mark Knopfler was called in by Jerry Wexler to work on Bob Dylan's first Christian record. Well, here's Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits is Calling Elvis. Building. 
This song, Calling Elvis, first appeared on the final studio album by the band. And that album was on every street in 1991. Again, Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler. It was released as the first single from that album, peaking at number 21 in the United Kingdom. The song is about an Elvis fan who believes Elvis Presley still may be alive, making reference to many of his songs, including, as you heard, Heartbreak Hotel, Love Me Tender, Don't Be Cruel, Return to Sender, as well as the expression, Elvis has left the building. Mark Knopfler has been quoted as saying the idea came to him one day when he left his phone off the hook and his brother-in-law tried repeatedly to get a hold of him. Upon finally doing so, the brother-in-law remarked, Mark was harder to get a hold of than Elvis. Let's return to Dire Straits. This is Our American Stories. And by the way, if you ever get a chance to pick up any old Dire Straits records, particularly Love Over Gold, it's just so interesting. This is back when people made records and you could actually hear bands and musicians play and play and play. My goodness, it doesn't get better often than that band that Mark Knopfler assembled called Dire Straits. We're celebrating songs about Elvis today for the hour. It was a lark when it started. We kept digging into it, and we kept finding good material and actually surprising ourselves, and that's why we bring it to you. Over 220 songs written about the king, about Elvis Presley. And when we come back, the final two, one by you 2 and one... Well, we're not going to tell you the other one. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to ZZ Top's cover of Eva Las Vegas. For the hour, we're going to be doing covers. Well, that's another hour. Covers of Elvis Presley. This is a cover. But this hour is all about songs about Elvis Presley, about Graceland. And our final two are upon us. And the first one up, well, this band wouldn't have been a band, I think, without Elvis and without America. And their signature album, Joshua Tree, well, it couldn't have been possible without the American landscape uh, and without, well, the American dream, because that's at the heart of it. And this Irish band wrote a song about Elvis. Let's take a listen. That song is A Room at the Heartbreak Hotel. It was released as a single in December 1988 with the song Angel of Harlem. By the way, Angel of Harlem was itself a tribute to Billie Holiday. And of course, in the name of love, pride, a tribute to Martin Luther King. This Irish band relating to these seminal black and white artists. And these were race artists in the end. Elvis surely was. By the way, the key lyrics in that, very hard to hear with all the reverb. I see the stars in your eyes. You want the truth, but you need the lies. Like Judy Garland, like Valentino, you gave your life for rock and roll. And I think all these guys understand Elvis' loneliness, his isolation, and what fame means, because they ultimately all experienced it themselves, except Elvis was so much bigger than anybody else. And I urge anybody who ever gets the chance to come into Memphis and do the tour 
We should actually do an Our American Stories music tour and do Memphis and Muscle Shoals and Nashville. And it's extraordinary. And, of course, get down into the Delta a little bit, down into Clarksdale and some of the places Jesse ventured around to when he was searching for the crossroads. One of our favorite hours we've done here on Our American Stories where Jesse went and investigated where exactly and which crossroads did Robert Johnson sell his soul to the devil. We didn't ever really found out which crossroad it was. So many people claimed that it was their crossroads around the Mississippi Delta. And the last song, well, I think this is just hands down the winner because it's just such a perfect song. And not many people have a song that almost anybody who'd think about that person's catalog would almost all say, that's his best song. And even the songwriter, well, he says the same thing about this song. And his name is Mark Cohn. By the way, Cohn, as you remember, was held up in a terrible uh, carjacking and shot in the head. And so one of the reasons you haven't heard about this career, well, it's he endured a really life-altering incident that changed his career, his life. He's alive, uh, but my goodness, getting shot in the head because he didn't surrender the keys to his, his SUV fast enough, well, that'll change your life. The song is Walking in Memphis, and it's a, it's a song he composed and originally recorded uh, way back in the, in the late 1980s. He described it as a song about a Jewish gospel music lover and as a, quote, pretty literal transcription of a visit I made in 1986. He said, I went to Graceland. I heard Al Green preach the gospel. I saw W.C. Handy's statue. But the song is about more than just one place in the end, he said. It's about a kind of spiritual awakening, one of those trips where you're different when you leave. By the way, those are the best kind of trips you can ever take with your family. I mean, it's nice to go to the beach, but I'll never forget my dad taking me down the Natchez Trace straight down to Vicksburg, and we were doing Civil War battlefield tours. And you want to make history come alive, go to the Vicksburg Civil War Museum and then go over that hill and see where the troops were nestled. And as they starved out the Confederate soldiers and families living in Vicksburg, history comes to life. It's not boring. And so with that, songs about Elvis Presley, and this is our favorite, Mark Cohn's Walking in Memphis. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain W.C. Handy, won't you look down over me? Yeah, I got a first-class ticket, but I'm as blue as a boy can be. Then I'm walking in Memphis, just walking with my feet ten feet off a beam. Walking in Memphis, but do I really feel the way I feel? Saw the ghost of Elvis on Union Avenue. Followed him up to the gates of Graceland, and I watched him walk right through. 
Now security they did not see him They just hover around his tomb But there's a pretty little thing Waiting for the king Down in the jungle room When I was walking in Memphis I was walking with my feet Ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis Catfish on the table They've got gospel in the air River and green Be glad to see you When you haven't got a prayer But boy you got a prayer in Memphis Every Friday at the Hollywood And they brought me down to see her And they asked me if I would Do a little number And I sang with all my might She said, tell me are you a Christian child And I said, ma'am I am tonight And there you have it, walking in Memphis. I love the lines, catfish on the table, gospel in the air. And that's the, that's the ambiance in which Elvis grew up, wrote, and came a man. And some of you are Christian, and ma'am, I am tonight, maybe one of the great one-liners in the history of music. Mark Cohen, walking in Memphis, our favorite Songs about Elvis for the hour. There were 220. This was number one. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues. In the middle of the pouring rain. Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues. In the middle of the pouring rain. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories and that is how the funeral began and the memorial service began for John Glenn with that song 
And that's the actual song. We got it off C-SPAN's website. If you want to see the entire memorial, go there. It's just terrific. General John Daly, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Director, stepped up early in front of a very big crowd and described John Glenn as an exemplary leader that will be missed dearly. The motto at Marine Officer Candidate School in Quantico is Ductus Exemplo, lead by example. And John set a fight example for us all. His wingman in Korea, the great baseball player Ted Williams, once called him one of the calmest men I have ever met, no matter how perilous the situation. He might have been referring to like an occasion where Williams was hit by anti-aircraft fire and his plane was ablaze. John pulled alongside, pointed up, and they climbed to, to higher altitude, and with the lack of oxygen, the flames were actually extinguished, and Williams made it back to base. Of all the war stories, this one perhaps best illustrates what John meant to us. He invited us up to his level, where we discovered what an American could do. He once said he had been a Marine for 23 years, and it just wasn't enough. We had John for 95 great years, and it still wasn't enough. A long, full life is a gift, and John made his a gift to us all. And today we say thank you for the service and sacrifice, for the faith and the friendship, and for always leading us higher. Even though the Marines' hymn was written over 200 years ago, they had John Glenn in mind where they wrote the lines, first to fight for right and freedom and to keep our honor clean. We're proud to claim the title of United States Marine. Colonel John Glenn has made his last takeoff and he'll be missed, but never forgotten. And you could hear General Daily, just holding back tears. This happened quite a number of times. And by the way, we did this same honoring and ceremony for Arnold Palmer when he passed and piped right into the ceremony and the memorial. And much the same thing happened. David Glenn was up next, and that's John Glenn's son. And he remembered his father and what made him the way he was. I can't really say for sure what made him the way he was, but he was born in a happy home with two parents who loved him deeply, and he grew up in a classic American small town, New Concord, Ohio, where he could adventure and explore to his heart's content. There was a terrific community spirit there, focused around church and school and town activities. And he told us lots of stories about his friends and my mother Annie. In particular, he never forgot the effect of the Great Depression on New Concord. When he was a kid, late one night, he overheard his parents talking about how they were going to lose their home if they couldn't make any more of the payments on their mortgage. But then one of FDR's New Deal public works programs to improve rural plumbing helped my grandfather's struggling plumbing business get off the ground, and that saved their home. 
Dad worked in that business as a teenager measuring and cutting, cutting, cutting pipes, and he was really proud of being a really good pipe cutter. He just told me about that earlier this year. The potential for government to do good was something that he never forgot. This was not an abstract concept to him. This was real life. As a little kid, he'd load some rhubarb from their rhubarb patch into his wagon and go door to door to make some extra money. He did the same thing with horseradish, and he liked to eat them both. <laughs> he had a paper route, and he worked in summers as a dishwasher at a summer camp, and he played trumpet in the town band. My grandmother loved poetry, and she had him learn poems that he could recite by heart till the end of his life, and he also wrote some of his own poems. All these stories that he told us about his growing up years now feel like gifts that he left us. And again, born in a house with two parents. His son thinks that shaped John Glenn. Being born in a small town where, well, he could just go on adventures. That was another big part of his father's character and what shaped it. And last but not least, being in a, in a small town centered around just a couple of simple things, church and school. And by the way, we're going to get into this a bit later, but we'll learn about the, the deep impact being married to the same woman his entire life and what love meant to him. And it's a remarkable story, he and his brides. And by the way, this small-town Ohio boy, well, he grew up in a place rich in aviation history. We know that Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, Ohio boy, and the Wright brothers, the first in flight, Ohio boys. More on the life of John Glenn. We're leaving you with what was his favorite song, the song that closed the ceremony, Nat King Cole's Autumn Leaves. Of red and gold I see your lips The summer kisses The sunburned hands I used to hold Since you went away The days grow long And soon I'll hear Old winter's song But I miss you most of all My darling When autumn leaves Start to fall This is Our American Stories, the life of John Glenn, celebrated at Ohio State University's Mershon Auditorium. John Glenn, a decorated U.S. Marine aviator and astronaut, was the first American to orbit the Earth and much later in life became the oldest person to travel to space. He also represented Ohio in the U.S. Senate. And it was quite a a jam-packed audience. C-SPAN carried this. And we decided to bring you the very best 
of this ceremony, which we do. We did this for Arnold Palmer's funeral. We also did this for Antonin Scalia's funeral, Justice Scalia. We think there's no better way to capture a human being's life than to share the eulogies of the people who knew him best. Next up, John Glenn's daughter, Lynn Glenn. She shares part of a letter that she wrote to her past father with the audience listening closely. You put the Buckeyes in a bowl in the waiting room of your office so visitors could take a little piece of Ohio home with them. And you never allowed your name or picture to be used to make money because you said you were a government employee and it wouldn't be right to make money from government service. In 1962, after Friendship 7, however, General Mills offered you a million dollars, and we were told it might even come up to five million dollars to be on a Wheaties box. This was an unimaginable amount of money for our family living on a marine pilot's pay, even with flight pay. You turned the offer down. You remained true to your small town nature, Dad, and your heart also remain true to the values of the Marine Corps. This is to your very burial, Dad. Dad, you chose a Marine-issue casket, like the ones most Marines ask for. You asked that enlisted Marines carry you to your grave, and you wore Marine green in your, to go to your grave, too. I love that after Echo Taps is played at your burial, you want revelry to be played because you said, I'll be getting up in a whole new dimension, and you said it with a grin. (laughs) (laughs) Earlier in this remembrance, I said you were a teacher, and you taught me more than just trying to tie a knot or memorizing my social security number. During the life you shared with mother, you were tender with and supportive of her, especially with her stuttering. When mother gave her very first speech, you didn't go with her. You listened on a phone and cried. You knew she had to stand alone and not in your shadow. And you were an elder in our Presbyterian church. But I think I learned more about religious practice watching how you lived your life. You treated other people as you wanted to be treated. You were true to your word with a handshake. You gave to the Salvation Army and lived with humility and gratitude. Beautiful words. Again, that's Lynn Glenn, John Glenn's daughter. Up next was Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio, and he shared a story about going out to dinner with John Glenn and also shared a passage from the book of Matthew. The night before the 50th anniversary of Colonel Glenn's space launch, Connie and I had dinner in German Village with Annie and John and Lynn and David and Karen. As the evening wound down, we headed to the door together. The valet pulled up 
in front of the restaurant with John's Cadillac. The 91-year-old astronaut hopped in the driver's seat, Annie in the front seat, and the kids, now all on the other side of 60, piled in the back. Some things just never change. <laughs> and oh, how they were in love, Annie and John. I spoke with Annie in April, on their, called them on their 75th wedding anniversary. She told me they had waited to get married until after John finished his flight training. We wanted to get married in high school, Annie said, but our parents wouldn't let, it, let us because they said it would never last. <laughs> and how they loved David and Lynn, as we saw today. John had a way of making everyone around him feel important, from the teenage Eagle Scouts to the farmers in the field. He lived his life by Matthew 25, where Jesus admonished his followers, whenever you did it, for any of my people, no matter how unimportant they seemed, you did it for me. John Glenn, a great man. John Glenn, such a good man. And there's a difference. And he was both. Next up, Sherrod Brown's bride, Connie Schultz. She had some stories of her own about John Glenn. And here's one about an interaction between John Glenn and her grandson, Clayton. Four years ago, John and Annie entered the hotel suite we had reserved for election night and were immediately swarmed by awestruck admirers. This is how it was with those two, always. And I've never known them to be anything but gracious with strangers. In the wake of my essay about John for The Plain Dealer, I've been on the receiving end of a steady stream of stories about random encounters with John and Annie. Every one of those stories has a happy ending. On that night in 2012, our four-year-old grandson Clayton was with us. He had spent much of the day rehearsing a question he wanted to ask John. I introduced him, and I told John that Clayton had something on his mind. Immediately, tall, lanky John leaned in so that he could talk face-to-face -face with our little boy. What's your question? John said. Clayton didn't hesitate. How do astronauts go to the bathroom in space? John smiled. Well now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Clayton nodded, and those of us within earshot gathered round for astronaut John Glenn's 10-minute tutorial on the machinations of urination in space. After he finished, Clayton thanked him and shook his hand and started making the rounds to share his new ex expertise. I hugged John and I thanked him for treating Clayton with such respect. Well, why wouldn't I? He said. Children have sincere questions and they deserve sincere answers. Clayton is eight years old now and we visited him just last weekend and one of the first things he said to me was, I'm sorry you lost your friend, Grandma. He was my friend, too. Last week, Sheridan and I learned from Lynn that our beloved friend was dying. If American icon John Glenn could take the time to treat a child with such respect, surely we can find ways to listen to one another. And time and again, folks sort of fought back tears and then found themselves laughing simultaneously. And I think that's tribute to John Glenn and the quality and nature of his life, born in 
a time of this country's history when I think people were born and thought anything was possible. And certainly John Glenn thought anything was possible. And it's ironic because he grew up at a time, again, we just heard it, the Great Depression. And yet it did not hinder what he thought he could do with his life. And it didn't hinder the Wright brothers, those other Ohio boys, and what they thought they could do with their lives. Or so many others, Neil Armstrong, another Ohio boy. Again, all these guys, well, two of them, children of the Great Depression. One, I mean, my goodness, the Wright brothers had even less. And look what they dreamed of and look what they did. And that's a theme we carry on with often here on Our American Stories. Just what can be possible here in this great country? And my goodness, the life story you're hearing about, well, there's so much more, including the most beautiful love story you can imagine, that between John and his bride, Annie. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me Fill my heart with song And let me sing forevermore You are all I long for All I worship and adore In other words Please be true In other words I love you This is Our American Stories. We continue with John Glenn's memorial service and Connie Schultz, the wife of Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, and a writer herself. And here is Connie talking about the depth of John Glenn's sense of empathy, timing, and the love for his wife, Annie. One of my most enduring memories of John as a friend and mentor involves his two-pronged sense of empathy and timing. He and Annie sat behind me during one of Sherrod's campaign debates in 2012. And when Sherrod's opponent called him a liar, John's hands immediately pressed on my shoulders to keep me in my seat. (laughs) He leaned in and he whispered, me too, but not now. (laughs) John was a man of his time who kept up with the times. Never was that more obvious to me than when he encouraged me to keep writing and sharing my opinions. I once joked with John and Annie that I had flunked political wife training. Neither of them laughed. Instead, Annie grabbed one of my hands and John grabbed the other. Listen to me, he said in a stern voice. You are who you are and that is why we love you. Annie squeezed my hand and added, never stop speaking your mind. I will never forget the way John turned and locked eyes with Annie. Listen to my Annie, he said, 
I always do. That is the part of John Glenn that we must not lose in all these tributes. He loved his wife. He loved his Annie. And he never tired of letting everyone know. Connie here describes the last time she saw John Glenn. His mind was sharp as ever, and he knew that his time on this planet was just about up. The last time Sherrod and I spent time alone with John and Annie was at their apartment here in Columbus. As soon as I sat down on the couch, John pointed to where I was seated and said to Annie, she's sitting where Hillary sat. (laughs) And until that moment, neither us nor certainly any member of the media had known that Hillary had just stopped by to visit. For more than an hour, we talked about the presidential race and we talked about the future of our country, but we also swapped stories about our children and our grandchildren. John was a bit slower, but only in movement. His mind was sharp as ever. As we prepared to leave, he made clear to us in his engineer's voice that he knew time was running out. You can only replace the parts so long, he said, putting a hand on each of our shoulders. Eventually, you need a new chassis. We were quiet on that elevator ride back to the lobby, each of us taking in what John was telling us. Once again, our friend was answering the question, the question, this one unspoken, as honestly as he could. One last time, John Glenn was leading the way. Annie, I am here as your friend, too, and as a fellow political wife. How you and I have laughed over the years at that silly definition of who we are. We didn't marry politics. We married the men we love. You once told me that John was your hero, too, but for reasons far more personal and meaningful than the public could ever know. Well, John knew, Annie. Once over dinner, in a room packed with his admirers, I mentioned to John how inspiring your marriage is to me. He leaned in and with the softest eyes said, Oh, Connie, I am who I am because of Annie. We love you, Annie. And next up was Reverend Amy Miracle from Broad Street Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. And she pinpoints the essence of John Glenn and why he was who he was, and that was because of his faith. If you listen to the deep rhythms of the Bible, you cannot miss God's overriding concern for the public good for creating a just and merciful society, for protecting the rights and welfare of those most vulnerable. And God has a special fondness for those willing to promote the common good, people who are willing to roll up their sleeves to do the hard, messy work of helping our communities work better of creating just laws and societies. This is complicated, hard work. And I'm not sure there is a higher or harder calling. Throughout his adult life, Senator Glenn shared his gifts to work towards that common good as a pilot, astronaut, senator, in his work in creating the John Glenn School. But his legacy is not limited to students enrolled in the school. His legacy is available to all of us. 
For one who traveled so far, who soared so high, he never left the rest of us behind. He always took us with him. Earlier this week, I asked Mrs. Glenn about her husband's faith. She answered, quote, We didn't talk about it much because it was in us, end quote. The Glens are of a generation that rarely spoke about their faith. They lived it. Faith got in John Glenn at a young age, and it took root. He had a deep, lifelong connection to God and to the church, and that connection shaped the trajectory of his life, giving him the courage to dare greatly and the wisdom to live humbly. And he knew in life and in death he belonged to God. Reverend Miracle goes on to talk about how John Glenn lived his life in a way that is seldom seen. Senator Glenn did something that is rarely done. And I'm not talking about any of the accomplishments that have been mentioned today. The rare thing he did was he lived a life that fully and completely reflected his deepest values. His priorities were in his bloodstream, his values embedded in the synapses of his brain. That's why the Philippians passage the family chose for today is so appropriate. His life embodies those words. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in John Glenn. And the God of peace will be with you. The tradition I represent the tradition in which John Glenn was baptized and so shaped his life, makes the claim that today, at this very moment, he is all right. He is not lost, but he is found. At this very moment, he is whole, complete, well. He is now cradled in the arms of love. God is holding him tight, and God will never, ever let him go. Today we give thanks to God for the life and witness of John Glenn. Indeed, and by the way, you won't hear anywhere in the media that particular passage. I'll share one from John Glenn, too. Looking at the earth from this vantage point, and that's as he's conducting his first orbit, looking at this kind of creation, and to not believe in God, well, to me, it's just impossible. This is Lee Habib, our final segment on the life of John Glenn, including a story of our own after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we're taking you to the campus of Ohio State University for the memorial service of John Glenn. And for those of you who didn't have a chance to see it or hear it, that's why we're here. And it's such an impressive life, and the eulogies were just so good. And the last was by Reverend Miracle, and this is the last clip we're going to play from the actual eulogies themselves. Reverend Miracle recites a poem reflecting on Glenn's life and adventures before closing things off with a final prayer. High flight. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter silvered wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you have not dreamed of, wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence. Hovering there, I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up. The long, delirious, burning blue, I've topped the wind-swept heights with easy grace, where never lark or even eagle flew. And while with silent, lifting mind, I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. Let us pray. Into your hands, merciful Savior, we commend your servant John. Acknowledge, we pray, a sheep of your fold, a lamb of your flock. Receive him into the arms of your mercy, into the blessed rest of everlasting peace, and into the glorious company of the saints in light. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Amen. And then the service closed as John had wished with the playing of taps.
And you just can't interrupt that. And for anyone who knows what that meant to John Glenn, it means that to you too. And now about the love of his life, Annie Glenn. Well, what's it like being married to a guy like John Glenn, taking the risks he took with his body, with his life? Well, here's Annie Glenn reflecting on the most dangerous missions, including that first in orbit to circle the Earth. Imagine again, the first to ever do this, his wife talking about what it was like waiting for John to come home. I never even heard the word astronaut. I had to learn how to spell that word. I was, I really, I didn't think we should be going out to, into a God's heaven. I mean, I just think he would never make it back. Then it came time for him, and then his launch kept being postponed. I, th- I forget how many times it was postponed. And uh, when it finally came, I was scared to death that, that he would never make it back. And matter of fact, one of the astronauts, when he was having a problem, they didn't know if, if his heat shield was going to come off or not. They called me and said he might not make it back. And then when he did, and then when he and then the, all of the excitement started. And then I hadn't had my new suit on yet. And so when I uh, when he was going to speak before Congress, I thought, by golly, this is this is what I'm going to wear. I put it on. I had lost 12 pounds, so I had to get a great big safety pin, which I luckily had, and I. I pinned my skirt <laughs> together because it was going to fall off. I didn't realize how much weight I had lost because I, w- I was so afraid. How did I cope? Again, losing all that weight out of worry. Not a diet. This is not the Atkins diet. And we wanted to close with a story from Travis Andrews in the Washington Post about this love. And it starts like this. Well before he exited the Earth's atmosphere, John Glenn flew at least 149 combat missions, 59 during World War II, and 90 during the Korean War. Boy, that's a lot for Annie to worry about. It must have been difficult on his bride, Annie Glenn, to ease her fear before each mission, Glenn would utter the same words. I'm just going down to the corner to pick up a pack of gum. That's what he'd tell her. Don't be long, she'd always reply. He said it before he was propelled into space on February 20, 1962, to become the first American to orbit the Earth. Years later, in 1998, when John, a man possessing an otherworldly spirit, would exit Earth's gravitational pull at 77 years old for the final time. Well, they repeated the dialogue. This time, he slipped her the perfect coda an actual pack of gum, which he kept in a breast pocket until he returned to Earth. Johnny and Annie were a strong couple, married 73 years, but while John spent his life in the air and on TV, Annie spent hers here on Earth, focused on the people who often go unseen, the disabled. It really is worth everything to be able to help people, Annie told the Washington Post in 1984, and she did, despite, miraculously, because of, all she had to overcome. To many, theirs was an odd pairing. As John himself wrote, quote, We practically grew up in the same playpen. We never knew a time and we didn't know each other. 
Annie says they were two years old when they met. But they were different. John was athletic and outgoing, while Annie barely spoke. Not because she didn't have anything to say, but because when she did, people often assumed she was either deaf or mentally deficient. For most of her life, Annie was afflicted with an 85% stutter, meaning she would become hung up on 85% of the words she tried to speak, which was a severe handicap. Those years must have been torture for Annie. Some of the inconveniences might seem small. John, her husband, recalled some in his memoir. For Annie, he said, stuttering meant not being able to take a taxi because she would have to write out the address and give it to the driver because she couldn't get the words out. It would be too embarrassing to try to talk about where she wanted to go. Going to the store was tremendously difficult and frustrating experience for her and for anyone when you can't find what you want and can't ask the clerk because you are too embarrassed of your stutter. Others were large. As the Post reported, once her daughter stepped on a nail, as blood gushed out, Annie couldn't speak well, and not nearly enough to call 911. Instead, she found a neighbor to make the call for her. She spent the early years of her marriage avoiding the spotlight, and while John seemed to enjoy the TV cameras, he clearly cared more for her privacy. In his book about the Mercury 7 astronauts, The Right Stuff, Tom Wolfe recalled an incident perfectly highlighting this fact. John had just sat for five hours in the Friendship 7 capsule, but the mission was eventually scrapped due to the weather. Meanwhile, Annie sat in their home with Vice President Lyndon Johnson sitting outside, and in Wolfe's words, hoping to pour ten, minute, ten minutes of hideous Texas soul all over her on national TV. Annie stuttered this to John over the phone as he prepared to climb out of his space chute. She didn't want the media attention, not with her stutter and all. Look, if you don't want the vice president or TV networks or anybody to come into the house, then that's that. That's as far as it is, as far as I'm concerned, John told her. They are not coming in, and I will back you up all the way, and you tell them that. I don't want Johnson or any of the rest of the team, or any of them, to put so much as one toe inside our house. As the wife of a famous astronaut, I had to deal with being constantly in the public eye, Annie said. But John, John always put me first. And that's a great scene, by the way, in The Right Stuff. One of the best scenes in the movie, where all the NASA administrators are just beside themselves when Glenn tells the vice president to stick it. This is our American stories, the life of John Glenn, the most impressive part, of course, his 73-year marriage to his bride, Annie. Start to fall.